What's up, everybody? Pastor Matt here. Thank you so much for checking into the podcast of Gospel Fellowship PCA. Hey, listen, what if I told you that there is a solid, biblical, doctrinally faithful, reformed church on a beautiful campus just a stone's throw north of Pittsburgh? Yeah, we don't have a Starbucks in the lobby. Sorry about that. We don't have a fog machine. We don't have an American Idol stage with laser lights shooting all around. But we do have the sweetest, kindest people in the world. We sing the Psalms and classic hymns of the faith. We preach the Bible chapter by chapter. We believe the whole thing's true. We love Jesus. We're on a mission to share the good news of the gospel with the world. Would you be interested in a church like that? Well, come check us out, Gospel Fellowship PCA in Valencia, Pennsylvania. Please feel free to visit our website at gospelfellowshippca.org and subscribe to our YouTube channel, Gospel Fellowship Presbyterian Church. All right, thank you so much. Here's today's message. Let's grab our Bibles. We are in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 this morning. We are now in chapter 5 of this great book. We're going to read verses 1 to 7 together as a congregation this morning. When you find 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, let's go ahead and stand up together as we recognize that God's Word is inspired. It's inspired of God. It is inerrant in all of its content. It's infallible in its purpose to us. And we, when we listen to the Word of God, it is as though we are listening to the very living and true God Himself. 1 Thessalonians 5, 1 to 7. Now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you, for you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. And while people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. But you are not in the darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief, for you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness, so then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. May God add his blessing to the reading and the hearing of his holy word. Amen. You may be seated. So whenever you go to the airport, you probably know this already, if you go very often, take a, a flight every once in a while, is there's a real sense of hurry up and wait when you go to the airport, right? You're hurrying down the highway, you want to get to the airports, they tell you to get there two hours early for a domestic flight, three hours early for an international flight. If you're like me, that's not good enough. Four hours early is probably right for both. So you're hurrying down the highway, you can't wait to get in there, you got to get past the ticket counter, you got to get to security and You hurry up and you get to security and then you have to wait and there's always somebody that doesn't know the protocol. They don't understand what they're doing. It's like laptops out of bags. How many times does the guy have to say that? Take your laptop out. It's got to be separate from the bag. And you're there. You've already got your shoes off and someone else is still figuring out, yes, you have to take off your shoes. You too. And then they're wondering, can I get this 32-ounce water bottle on the plane? And the answer to that is what? The answer is no because water, it'll explode on the airplane for all we know. And don't say explode either. You can't do that. That's another rule. You can't say that. And so it's all hurry up and wait when you go to the airport. And if you're like me, the moment you get through security, you are booking it to the gate, right? You're booking it to the gate. You've got to hurry up and get there. You're leaping over people that are sleeping on the ground waiting for their flight. Chariots of Fire theme song playing in the background as you're leaping over other people's luggage. And then you get to the gate, and then what do you do? 
you wait for another three hours or so, and you hurry up on the plane, and then it's wait again, and that's sort of the sense that uh, Paul is trying to convey here in 1 Thessalonians chapters 4 and 5. There's a sense in which when we talk about the return of Christ, there's a real immediacy that's important here. There's a sense of urgency. There's a, there's a sense of, of vital importance, of great significance here. Uh, I like the word alacrity, which means a readiness, a readiness to spring into action at any point. We have, we have to have alacrity when it comes to the return of Christ. We're waiting for him, and yet at the same time, almost paradoxically, there's this other sense, there's this tension in which it's an urgent patience or a steadfast alacrity. When it comes to the return of Christ, we are both urgently hoping, uh, we're, we're striving in one sense to be ready for this, and yet, and yet also we have to simultaneously be patient and steadfast, waiting very patiently. As far as we know, the Lord might come today, and as far as we know, the Lord may tarry for another thousand years or two, as far as we know. We don't know. And so for the last couple of weeks, we've been looking in 1 Thessalonians chapters 4 and 5 of this great doctrine of the return of Christ. Uh, we call the study of these things eschatology, which I've mentioned in the last couple of sermons. Eschatos is the Greek word for last, and then anything ology is the study of. Uh, eschatology, then the study of the last things or the return of Christ. And Paul, a couple of weeks ago, we mentioned how he's, he's really bringing this up out of pastoral concern for the Thessalonians, right? Remember two weeks ago, verses 13 to 16, Paul is, is writing about the return of Christ because he wants them to know that those Thessalonian Christians who have put their faith in Christ and yet now they've died, they've, they've gone to be with the Lord. Their souls are not lost. They are sure in the grip of His grace, even though uh, He has not yet returned and some of them have died. And so Paul is writing this whole section to comfort the Thessalonians. And then last week, last week, very interesting text, at least I thought, I hope you thought so as well. We looked at the return itself and, and Paul calls it in one sense the parousia of Christ, which is a word that I told you last week is like a great military return of a king or an emperor or a victor back to his city, a great moment of pomp and splendor. And yet, there's also that word there in the Latin in verse 17, uh, the rapio or the rapture in which Christ catches up together those who believe with him even as he's returning in glory and splendor. And so I told you last week that the rapture and the return are simultaneously the same event. There's no, re there's no reason to distinguish them by any time. It's the same event that we're talking about here. And so uh, this week, though, you're going to notice a shift in tone in these things. There's a, there's a real shift in tone because whereas in the previous paragraph at the end of chapter 4, Paul's primary purpose is pastoral comfort and encouragement to other believers, yet notice here the shift in tone. Now it takes on a, a bit of a warning. Did you, did you notice that? There's a little bit more of an, of an ominous warning connotation here in chapter 5, especially in verses 1 through 7. And so he's writing to encourage believers, yes, but also he's warning some others. Who is he warning? Well, certainly those who do not believe, and certainly also those who profess to believe but are perhaps hypocrites. Okay? So we're going to deal with this in a couple of ways this morning as we work through this passage. We're going to look at some other passages as well, but primarily 1 Thessalonians 5, 1-7 is our text. We're going to look this morning, if you're making an outline in your, in your notes or in your bulletin, or if you brought a notebook with you or anything like that, I'm going to give you this morning one reminder, 
And then I'm going to show two metaphors that Paul uses himself, and then three contrasts. So, so we've got one reminder, two metaphors, and three contrasts that we're going to look at. Let's dig into the text here. I hope you have your Bible open with you. 1 Thessalonians 5. Let's look at verse 1. Let's start off right there. Paul says something interesting here to the Thessalonians. He says, Now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you. For you yourselves are fully aware, aren't you? You're fully aware. You know this. Now, previously we talked about how Paul's teaching ministry was cut off in Thessalonica because they were chased out of the city, he and Timothy and and Silas, because of persecution. But here at least Paul is able to say, of the questions you have pertaining to eschatology or the end times, verse 2, you are yourselves fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. And so therefore, I don't have much to write you about this, he says. I'm not going to waste time. I'm not going to waste ink on this subject matter because concerning the times and the seasons, you have no need to have anything written to you. Now let's just pause right there and ask why not. Because we have a lot of questions about the end times, don't we? But Paul says you don't have, you don't have any need for me to say details about when and the timing and the seasons thereof. Okay, So we can ask questions, we can ask about the what's, we can ask about the why, we can ask about the who, all of those in a sense have been answered at the end of chapter 4, but there's one question that is essentially forbidden of us to ask. What question is that? We're not to ask pertaining to the when or the timing. Paul uses a phrase, look at this phrase, you might underline it or circle it in your Bible, concerning the times and the seasons, I have no need to write you anything. So the Deuteronomy 29, 29 rule is in effect here. The secret things belong to the Lord, but what has been revealed to to us belongs to us and to our children forever. Now this phrase, the times and the seasons, this strikes me as something that I've heard before. Do you recall this? Let's go back to Acts chapter 1, and we're going to see the same phrase used in a very similar context here. Acts chapter 1, the beginning of Paul's accounts of the miraculous and apostolic, wonderful, divine spread of the gospel in the, uh, in the ancient world in the first century, his own time. Uh, look at Acts chapter 1, verse 6, and listen for this phrase. We've heard this phrase before, times and seasons, okay? Actually, let me pull it back to Acts 1, verse 4, just to get a little bit of the context here. And it says this, And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait... Wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, You've heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Verse 6. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, here comes the when question. You ready? Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? In other words, Lord, give us the timetables. We want to know the chronology. We want to know the secret of events, uh, the sequence of events. Tell us the when question. And then look at what we get here in verse 7. He said to them, It is not for you to know the times or the seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea, and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And so the same sort of shutdown here that Jesus gave to the disciples when they asked the when questions, 
Paul is now using the same language to sort of shut down and, and to cut off these eschatological when questions that the Thessalonians are likewise wondering about. And so notice here, Jesus says, no, I'm not going to answer regarding to the times and the seasons. However, I will give you power. I'll give you the power of the very Holy Spirit himself. I will give you a mission. I'll give you the mission of the very great commission itself to carry the name of Christ to the ends of the earth. These things you ought to be preoccupied with. These things should be be of utmost importance to you. But the timing, the sequence, no, the times and the seasons, Paul says, I have no need to write anything to you. Why is that? Why does Paul say, I have no need to write of the times and the seasons to you? Because, Because in the scriptures, it's very, very clear. And we already heard it once from Matthew chapter 24. We already heard it once, right? Concerning the day and the hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. That's why Paul says, I have nothing new to to tell you about this. Nobody knows. Only the Father. Not even the angels. If Gabriel shows up and says, I've got some information for you, you might find curious about the timing of the return of the Lord, don't believe it. Not even the angels know. And yet, yet here's the irony. The irony is that age after age, generation after generation, century after century, what have Christian believers done? They've made predictions. And so let's just go through a, a litany of some predictions this morning, just for fun. I think you'll find this interesting. It goes all the way back. All the way back to the first millennium, Hippolytus of Rome, he predicted 500 A.D. would be the return of Christ. He knew it. He was sure of it. 500 A.D. How did he know? Well, he predicted the return of Christ 500 A.D. based on, ready for this, the dimensions of the ark. How about that? You ever think about that? Computing the end times based on the dimensions of the ark? Why in the world would he say something like that? Well, because you have the ark here in Matthew chapter 24, so it makes sense, right? Wrong. He was wrong. Um, 1000 A.D., very popular time to make predictions about the return of Christ. Everybody was predicting 1000 A.D. Totally makes sense given Revelation 20, the thousand years, right? The Pope even said it. Pope Sylvester II, no relation to Sylvester Stallone, but Pope Sylvester II predicted 1000 A.D. would be the return of Christ. He was wrong. So what did he do? Well, he did what many people who predict the return, he simply revised his calculation. So he went from 1,000 to 1,033. Why do you think he added 33 years? Well, I I forgot something. I forgot to put in the fact that Christ died and was raised in 33 AD. So 1,000 years after that, and he was wrong again. Alessandro Botticelli, the famed Italian Renaissance painter, predicted 1,500 would be the year. Of Christ's return. And he was wrong. It was a very common thing, though, in the Middle Ages to predict, to predict the return of Christ. After all, you had wars, you had rumors of wars, you had plagues and pestilences. Several times the plagues swept through Europe, killing large percentage of the population. Every time these sort of things would happen, there would be yet another prediction of Christ's return, and every single time they were wrong. 
Uh, Emanuel Swedenborg predicted the date of 1757. He claimed, listen to this, he claimed to have 30 years of daily conversations with Christ. He said, I know it. I got it. Figured it out. I've done what nobody else could do. 1757, Christ told me. I've been meeting with him for breakfast for 30 years. And what happened? He was wrong. And yet the cult of Swedenborgianism still exists today. Google it. You may find it interesting. Here in America, William Miller, a Baptist pastor, intensely studied Daniel chapter 8, and he figured it out. He was the first guy ever to figure it out. 1844 is a date, he said. And he was wrong. And that date became known as the Great disappointment because he was very effective at communicating his calculations from Daniel chapter 8. And so many, many people began to believe him. In fact, it actually started a movement that became a somewhat of a cult. The Seventh-day Adventist movement was formulated based on the great disappointment. Sometimes their doctrine appears to be very Protestant and Orthodox, and other times it seems to be a little bit strange. But listen to one statement of one of the Millerites. He said, I waited all Tuesday, October 22nd, and dear Jesus did not come. I waited all the forenoon of Wednesday, and I was well in body as I ever was, but after 12 o'clock I began to feel faint, and before dark I needed someone to help me up to my chamber as my natural strength was leaving me very fast, and I lay prostrate for two days without any pain, sick with disappointment, he said. And so the great disappointment was a cause of hurt to very many people based on those false Predictions. Here's one that you may have already known if you know a little bit of local history. Have you heard of George Rapp before? Interesting connections here. He's from Württemberg, Germany, which happens to be where the Everhard family comes from. No relation. Some, September 15, 1847 is the date that he died. He had split off from the Lutheran Church, and he brought a group to, to America because he was sure, he was convinced. He knew for a fact that Christ was going to come back in his own lifetime. And so he built a movement. I built up the city of Harmony here in Butler, Pennsylvania. Have you ever been to the Butler, or, or I'm sorry, the Harmony Historical Society? They'll tell you the whole story. They were devoted to chastity. They did not marry. They would adopt children at times, but they did not have progeny. And so, of course, when he died, he was wrong like everybody else. Charles Taze Russell, founder of the Jehovah's Witnesses, a number of predictions, all of them incorrect. 1874, he predicted. 1875, he tried again. 1878, he tried again. 1914, they tried again. The Jehovah's Witnesses as a cult have a history, a whole litany of failed predictive prophecies about the return of Christ. Sometime in the 70s, they stopped doing that altogether. Joseph Smith of the Mormons, another cult, 1835, he made a prediction 65 years later, Christ would return in 1891, it did not happen. And sometimes even people that we might consider to be Bible-believing evangelicals do these same things. Harold Camping, you you may remember him from Family Bible Radio, did anyone listen to him on the radio? Had a prediction, 1994, didn't happen. Uh, Again, May of 2011, it didn't happen. So he revised it one more time, October of 2011. It did not happen. And as he went stranger and stranger with his predictions, curiously, and, and, and quite coincidentally, isn't it? He moved further and further away from orthodox Bible believing doctrine, too. That seems to happen. 
I'll give you another one. You may remember Ed Dobson. Like the year 1000, many, many people predicted the year 2000 would be the return of Christ. Ed Dobson wrote a book, Why Jesus Could Return by 2000. He was a megachurch pastor in Grand Rapids, not talking about somebody here on the fringes, not talking about a cultic weirdo. We're talking about somebody who was the editor of Christianity Today magazine. He was the Moody Bible Institute 1993 Pastor of the Year, and he made a prediction that Christ would come in 2000, and it did not happen. And so you put all this data together and you say to yourself, why do people keep doing this and why do people keep falling for it? Well, there seems to be a couple of commonalities here and why people keep making these predictions is first of all, they have the audacity, the pride, they have the, the self-conceit to truly believe that they're the one person in all of history that has done what nobody else could do. They themselves have figured out the mysteries of the hidden secrets of the prophecies. And they're pretty good at convincing people that they've figured it out. And not only that, but they'll very often tell you that they have some sort of special communications between either them or God or Christ or the angels. And so I ask you today, in fact, I I exhort you and I urge you to stop listening to these sorts of false prophecies. Stop buying the books. Stop watching the movies. Stop supporting the televangelist ministries or the radio ministries that do these things. You don't need this. Paul says, what did Paul say? 1 Thessalonians 5.1 Concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you. What Scripture says is sufficient enough. And what Scripture says is that no one knows the day or the hour. Therefore, Paul says, I have a reminder for you. You don't need this information. There is no access to it. Okay, secondly, let's move on then to two metaphors related to the return of Christ. Now, Paul is a good pastor. He's very wise. And so Paul now, in order to confirm the Thessalonians and what he has just taught them, is now going to go them, give them two metaphors that he hopes that they would do well to pay attention to. Here they are, I'll give them to you, and then we'll look at each one. First, Paul uses a very familiar metaphor of the thief in the night. You see that in verse 2 of our main text? For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. And then again, he uses it in verse 4. But you are not in darkness, brothers, for the day to surprise you like a thief. So that's the first metaphor that Paul gives. And then he gives a second one here. He gives a second one in verse 3. Look at this. For while people are saying there's peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them. As labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, they will not escape. And so Paul, where does Paul get these two metaphors from? Does he invent them out of thin air? No, he does not. Paul is getting these two metaphors from Matthew 24, the Olivet Discourse of Jesus. Now I want to pay, we're going to go to Matthew 24 here in just a second, but I want to pay a little bit of mind if we will, to what Paul says before we go to the source text in Matthew 24. Look at verse 2 again. Look carefully here. And this is where, this is where you're going to see the shift happen here from comfort in chapter 4 to warning in chapter 5. Look at the shift. For you yourselves, Christians, he's talking to Christians here, you yourselves, Christians, you are fully aware, you know this, you've been educated, 
that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. Let's just pause there for a second. Day of the Lord. Does that ring any bells? Day of the Lord. That would ring bells if we were very familiar with Old Testament prophecy. Because in the Old Testament prophets, the day of the Lord is not necessarily a very comforting thought. If you go back to Isaiah and Joel, who uses the term five times in a four-chapter book, or Jeremiah, uh, Isaiah, Ezekiel, the day of the Lord in Old Testament prophetic literature is a day of warning, it is a day of doom, it is a day of judgment, it is a day of, of great darkness, it is an ominous day in which believers would do very well to take sincere warning. In fact, the two groups that need to take the most warning when the day of the Lord is mentioned is not necessarily the sincere people who love the Lord and who trust Him with their lives, but the two groups that need to take the most warning are those who do not know Christ as Savior, do not know the Lord, and those who say they do, but they're hypocrites and they don't. Those are the two groups that need to be warned. And therefore, the metaphor is this, that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. Isn't it strange to call our Lord a thief? Right? Isn't that that weird? Call the Lord a thief? What is he taking? What has he come to take? Well, the Bible tells us right here, he's come to take your peace and security. He is, in a sense, like a repo man who will come like a thief in the night to repossess that which you have not given him thanks and praise for. He will take that from you. And so the the source text here, let's go back to what Paul is quoting. Paul is evidencing here great familiarity with the the Olivet Discourse, Matthew chapter 24. Let's go back to where Paul is is, um, originally drawing this language from. Matthew 24, this was our supplemental reading this morning. Jesus speaking here, but concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven nor the Son, but the Father only. For as the days of Noah, so will the coming of the Son of Man be. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark. In other words, they were going on happy, they're fine, they think they're peaceful, they think they're secure. Everything is going on just swimmingly until the day that Noah enters the ark, and then verse 39, but they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. Then two will be in the field. One will be taken and one left. Two women grinding at the mill, one taken, one left. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know the day that the Lord is coming. So the, the, the language of here is this. Fly to the ark, Right? Flee to the ark, the haven of refuge, as quickly as you possibly can. Go to that which God has provided for your deliverance by grace. Go to where you may safely be saved. And we know, don't we, that the ark is a type of Christ. And so we are to flee to Christ. We are to fly to Christ. He's the only safe place to be when the flood comes. And so that's the the first metaphor, is the metaphor of the thief in the night. But then Paul adds a second one here. This one also has the same source text of Matthew chapter 24. He uses this language of labor and pregnancy and delivery. Again, we see this in the Olivet Discourse in Matthew chapter 24. Listen to this. 
This is Matthew chapter 4, I'm sorry, Matthew chapter 24, verse 4. See that no one leads you astray. For many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ. And they will lead many astray and you will hear of wars and of rumors of wars. But see that you're not alarmed. For this must take place, but the end is not yet. Verse 7, for nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. And there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. Look here, look here at verse 8. All of these are but the beginning of birth pains. And so here is our labor and delivery metaphor. If ever there is a situation in life, a common situation in which that urgent patience is necessary, it's in waiting for the child to come. If ever there is a moment in life where that that steadfastness and that alacrity need to be combined together, it is in waiting for the child to come. And do mothers know this very well? Because what are they doing months ahead of the delivery of their child? They're, they're preparing everything. They're preparing the room. They're preparing the crib. They're preparing the cradle. They're stocking up on diapers. They're painting things as they ought to be when the child comes. They're doing absolutely everything. They have their emergency diaper bag already ready to go so that when the moment happens, right, and dad needs to have on speed dial the name of the doctor, and dad needs to have the directions and the route route to the hospital already programmed in his phone. There's this steadfast patience and yet this urgency of alacrity that is required because as even as birth is a beautiful and glorious thing, as we can all testify, yet there's also a real danger in childbirth, isn't there? It's a real danger. And especially in the ancient world when child mortality rates were extraordinarily high and even birthing mother mortality rates were extraordinarily high, there's a possibility of great joy, but there's also a warning of pain and difficulty. And so the steadfast readiness is is apparent in this metaphor of the pregnancy and also then the inevitability because once the labor pains begin, there is no stopping it, no going back. There is no reverse, there is no rewind. It is going to happen. And Jesus himself, even in Matthew chapter 24, he has his own source text for this day of the Lord pregnancy motif. It comes from Isaiah chapter 30, I'm sorry, 13. Isaiah 13, listen to this. Wail for the day of the Lord is near. As destruction from the Almighty it will come. Therefore all hands will be feeble and every heart will melt. They will be dismayed. Pains and agony will seize them. They will be like, listen, they will be in anguish like a woman in labor. They will look aghast at one another. Their faces will be aflame. Okay, same metaphor. Day of the Lord, urgency, labor. Okay, so one reminder, two metaphors, and then finally, let's look at three contrasts that Paul gives here. Back in our main text, we're back in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Paul is now going to give three contrasts. Listen very carefully to them. We'll deal, we'll deal briefly with them, I promise. Verse 5, For you are all children of light, children of the day. We're not of the nights or of the darkness, so then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. Verse 7, For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk, 
are drunk at night. Did you catch all three of the contrasts there? Did you see what those were? So let's just tick them off. We've got light and darkness contrasted. Those two things are opposites, right? Light and dark. We have uh, a wakefulness and sleepiness contrasted here as well. And then finally, we have sobriety and drunkenness contrasted in this text. Now, why does Paul do this? Why does he say these things? Well, here's why. Because all eschatology is ultimately morality, right? Let's say that again. All eschatology is ultimately morality. Because whenever the Bible, almost as a rule, whenever the Bible talks about the end of all things, the day of the Lord, the return of Christ, it's almost always talking about, in context, make sure that your life is ready. Eschatology is always morality in the Bible. The question that we're always to be asking ourselves is not necessarily, Lord, give me the time, I need to know the date. The question that we are to be asking ourselves is, is my life ready? Is my life ready? And so all three contrasts here then are, are, they turn out to be pretty important. Because first of all, we have light and darkness, which is as biblical a motif as anything I can think of to show the clear distinction between good and evil, right? Light is the good, darkness is the evil. Everybody knows that. It's true in the Bible, it's true in theology, it's true in philosophy, even in art. There's an obvious distinction between light, which is good, and darkness, which is evil. Very often in scriptures, we're told things like that God is light, that his word is light, that his son is light, that, his, that, that, that we are to walk in light as he is in the light, 1 John 1, right? And yet darkness is evil, it is ignorance, it is doom, it is destruction, It is what is due the day of the Lord. And then we have the second contrast here. We have awake versus asleep. Now, I take it to be, this is my interpretation of this text, that all believers are in the light. Because he says here, you are children of the light. Okay, So no question, if you're a Christian believer today, you are a child of the light. However, then he says in verse 6, so then let us not sleep. So while you are a child of the light, Christian, it does seem, though, that it might be possible that you might fall into a phase of sleepiness in your patience, in your alacrity. That's possible, right? That even Christians can get drowsy, even Christians can get distracted, uh, even Christians can be confused by these things. Think, for example, of the disciples in the, uh, the Garden of Gethsemane on the night that Jesus is betrayed. Remember, Jesus goes out and he's sweating like drops of blood in the Garden of Gethsemane. He brings with him Peter and John. And what does he say to the Peter and John? Remember the story? So stay with me awake. Pray with me. Can you pray with me for one hour? And no, they don't. They fail and they become sleepy and they become drowsy. And so Paul is using this idea of sleepiness here as, as, a, as a contrast to, to shake us, as it were, to wakefulness. Are you awake this morning? Are you, is your life awake? Are you ready for these things? Are you prepared? And then the third contrast, Paul says here, Uh, He says, it is something like being sober versus being drunk. Are you thinking clearly about these things? Is your mind in a right place? If I were to ask you this morning, are you drunk? You'd probably be insulted and you'd say, well, pastor, it's Sunday morning. Why would I be drunk? What is drunkenness then? 
Uh, it is when we are inebriated, we are, we are put into an altered state of thinking because we've taken a foreign substance into us that inhibits our decision-making capabilities. It inhibits our alacrity. It, it inhibits our ability to be patient. And so Paul is using this language here of drunkenness, and we ought to ask ourselves a couple of questions here. Are we drunk on pride? Are we drunk on career? Are we drunk on worldliness? Are we drunk on social media? Are we drunk on accumulating goods and possessions and property so that we can't even think anymore? It's a good question. You know, I've been studying a lot in recent weeks the Great Awakening in the 1700s, Edwards and Whitfield and all that. And it's interesting that we often use the revival the word revival, to describe what happens when God pours out His Spirit in tremendous and marvelous ways. But uh, the, the language that they used to use in those days was an awakening. When God pours out His Spirit, He gives the church an awakening to the spiritual realities that are all around us, to the spiritual realities of the Lordship of Christ and to the certainty of His return. Let's pray for that as we close. Heavenly Father, Lord, this morning we do pray for a great awakening, Lord, that you would shake us back from drunkenness to sobriety. Lord, that if there would be anybody here whose life is not ready for the day of the Lord, that you would prepare us thereunto by your Holy Spirit, God, that you would cause the grogginess, the sleepiness, the drowsiness to be shaken off from us so that our whole lives would stand in the light, awake and sober as we wait patiently for your return. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Hi, everybody. My name is Rob, and I am a deacon at Gospel Fellowship PCA. I'm also the sound engineer, the camera guy, and the podcast manager. Thank you so much for listening to today's message. Please come visit us in person. Gospel Fellowship is a Bible-believing church just north of Pittsburgh, And you can find us at gospelfellowshippca.org. See you next time.